Well, so good to see you guys. Glad you're here. Hey, first thing I want to do is um, I'm going to ask Pastor Kerry Stewart to come and make an announcement about something that, that we have coming up that is a really cool opportunity that we have. Yes, we were recently invited to host an event here at Timberline Church by an organization called Shield 616. Their mission is to make a kingdom impact in the lives of those who serve and protect our communities. So on April 21st, Friday, April 21st, 50 Larimer County deputies are gonna participate in a vest ceremony in our main auditorium. Part of this ceremony includes partnering them with people from Timberline Church that will pray for them. So if you are willing to be a part of this, You'd need to be available Friday, April 21st to be at the event. Be willing to pray for this deputy that you're going to be given a name of. I'd love to chat with you. We do have a table in the back. I'd like to talk to you afterwards if this is something you'd like to do. Thank you. Wonderful. Cool. Thank you, Carrie. <clears throat> yeah, it, it really is a neat opportunity, just a wonderful, wonderful uh, way that we get to bless our um, Laram County sheriffs in our area. So hopefully you guys will... Uh, be a part of that. Um, I mentioned this the other week. Let me say a couple things about our schedule and calendar. Next week is spring break. So you'll all be in some uh, destination, I'm sure, somewhere with palm trees, and I won't be. Um, but we won't be having a midweek service, our Wednesday night community, um, TSM, Timber Kids, any of that going on next week. The week after that, if you remember, I said uh, Pastor Dick Foth is going to be here. He's going to be talking about politics. And so I would love to have any questions you might have of, you know what I would really love to hear addressed? Or you know a question that I just, I, I'm always kind of struggling with, wrestling with in relation to our, our faith and its relation to kind of the state politics stuff. I would love to have that to be able to give that to Pastor Foth and his friend who he's going to be bringing with him. So please send those into, there's an email inside the bulletin that you can find that there um, to send those in. So we are... What are we, week six, I think, in our series here? Um, we've spent some time laying some foundational ideas of what is culture, um, how should we think of the nature of truth, and all of these things we're applying then uh, to each one of these individual uh, issues that we're kind of jumping into. Uh, we looked at biblical ethics. We spent two weeks considering what does the Bible have to say about gender? How should we think about gender, and then even more specifically, the particular challenge that we oftentimes are uh, encountering now with this trans transgender phenomenon in our culture, and how do we, again, navigate that, love people, think about ideas, all that sort of thing. Tonight, we're going to get into, and we're just going to do one week on this, um, the idea of what does the Bible have to say about race? Yes, I brought the lights up in case you're wondering, and that was my, that was me. Um, <clears throat> No, I'm just kidding. Um, what does the Bible have to say about, about race? How should we think about it? And um, I, I also, secondly, want to look at one particular cultural danger that is a bit of a unique challenge to our culture right now that's oftentimes easily misunderstood. I want us to just sketch it a little bit. And then ultimately look at um, what, did Jesus, uh, what Jesus did to ultimately defeat slavery. 
The question is oftentimes asked, why didn't Jesus ever address slavery? I think he did in a very significant way, but it's one that's oftentimes uh, under the surface a bit. It's a bit hidden, and we don't see the, the genius of what he did that planted the seeds that actually were the destruction of slavery. So let's start with this. Just how, how does the Bible account for race? Um, let me go to first uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. And this will be up on the screen here, Acts chapter 17, verse 22. This is where Paul goes to the city-state of Athens, and he's speaking to the Areopagus. This is the ruling body of the city-state. This is the same ruling body, not same individuals, but the same ones that, that put Socrates to death. Okay, So think of just sort of the context there, the intimidation. Paul goes there, and he, he walks around, he notices all these different idols, meaning these are, these are people who worship other gods. This is important because this is going to come in here as we're looking at the division up, or the dividing up of the, of the humans. He sees all of these different people with their different gods. And then he comes to them and he says, um, men of Athens, I see that you're very religious in many different ways. He starts out with a compliment, right? Not I see you're dirty pagans. <laughs> I see you're very religious. Now that's leaning in the wrong direction. He's going to go, but, but that, that, uh, that desire inside you, yeah, God planted that there. And he says, in fact, I saw, I saw one idol. It's, it was to the unknown God. Now, there's a couple different possible interpretations, but what I think that means, because this is in the Greek Hellenistic mindset, is that there was a, a most high God, and he created lesser gods, and they sort of, you know, or, or at least created one and then created another, and eventually you get down to this sort of uh, demiurge, this sort of lesser God that, that he's willing to create the world, because the most high God would never get his fingers dirty with physical stuff, yuck. Dirty, yucky people. Um, and so, but there's the most high God, but we don't have access to him. No one knows who he is. He's the most high God. And I think what Paul is doing is he's saying, I'm going to tell you who he is. I'm going to tell you who the most high God is. So he says this, what therefore you worship is unknown. I uh, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, here's the key part. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. And on all the face, to live on all the face of the earth, and having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek that most high God and perhaps feel their way toward him, find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. So what event does Paul have in mind when he says from one man, God made every nation of men, but then he, 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 he determined where they would live? Do you remember what event that is? The, the Tower of Babel. This is Genesis 11. And Genesis 11 is when this happens. So we know that's what Paul has in mind. Because there's only one time that God determined where all the nations would be. So he's thinking back. Um, if you go to Genesis chapter 10, it gives, it's, it's called the table of nations. And it lists out 70 different nations. It might be 72, depending on how you read a couple of the names. So 70 or 72. But these are all the known nations 
in Genesis 10. And then the very next chapter tells how they became all these nations. So if we just scroll on down to chapter 11, this is what we know as the Tower of Babel. And we know in this account of the Tower of Babel, God has told people, spread out over all the earth, right? You're out of my presence. They've been kicked out of the garden, but I want you to spread. But the Edenic vision is still in play. I want you to spread out over the earth and cultivate. You know what we're talking about. Of course, what do they do? They say, let's stop here lest we spread out over all the earth, right? Lest we obey God, right? Let's stop right here. And, th- and then they build what most scholars believe is a ziggurat. This is, this is part of a temple complex. And the goal was not for them to go up to God, but it was to get God to come live there, to dwell there. They're saying, we're going to determine the nature of our relationship. So that, that's, how, that's how a ziggurat functioned, is that you would build it, it looked beautiful, it looked kind of like God's home, and so he would come and reside in there, and then you can bargain and you're in control of the relationship as long as he does his part and you do your part and blah, blah, blah. Okay? So they... And God just goes, I'm done. <laughs> I am done with you guys. And so he said, he, of course, he confuses their language. And so that's, and then he breaks them up. And we know from Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, we've gone over this. If you want more depth than this, we did a whole series called The Unseen Realm, where we walked through a number of this. But this is a comment, kind of a commentary back on when God judged the world. Because God's judging them when he divides them. It's a judgment. And so he says, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, when the Most High, when did we come across the Most High God before? Just an act, remember? To the unknown God, this altar. (laughs) So he's talking about that God. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind into the nations, into different ethnic groups. Of course, we told he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So again, don't have time to jump into all of the explanation of this. If you're interested, listen to the Unseen Realm series. But this is the event where God splits them up. And what we have to realize, number one, is the biblical language to speak of races is not accurate. I mean, the way we speak of it is not accurate to the way the Bible speaks of it. It's not races. There is one human race. There is one human race. There are not multiple races. Um, What are there? There are nations. There are ethnic groups. That's the way we are to think about it according to the Bible. There are different ethnic groups, but there is one human race. And you know, the hard part is we're, we're sort of locked into this language, aren't we? You know, like when we talk about racism, I, I, I mean, we're locked into the language. So yeah, we kind of have to use it, but you have to realize it's inaccurate. It doesn't accurately describe God's good world. <clears throat> and so the way the rest of the Bible speaks of it, there's Israel and there's the nations. Israel and the Gentiles. Jew and Gentile, right? That's, that's how the Bible thinks of the human race. It is split into the nations, and God has divorced them from himself. He's, he's given them over. And then there's his people of Israel. And of course, that's what we read about immediately after him divorcing the nations, is that he goes and he plucks out one person 
from the nations, and he's not taking one of their best ones. It's not like, you know, like when you pick teams, like I'll take the best you know, player. He picks one who's too old to reproduce, and God goes, that's perfect. <laughs> and so he takes Abram, he takes Sarai, and from them, he, we're, we're told this. He says, this is uh, Genesis 12. Now go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now here's, here's the key part. Because my question is, so is he done with the nations? And we read this. And in you, all of the families of the earth will also get the blessing. They will receive the blessing. So what we learn from here is even though God has divorced himself from the nations, a lot of them to other sons of God, we know those sons of God rebel at some point, and they're the powers of the air, the authorities, and, and they're evil and corrupt and manipulating people. He's not done with the nations. He still wants to bring his blessing. And in the context of Genesis, God's blessing is associated with his presence. Um, to be blessed was to be in God's presence. Those, those kind of go hand in hand. They're two sides of a coin. God's blessing is his presence. His presence is his blessing. So when he says, I'm going to bring my blessing back to the nations, his presence is coming along with that somehow. And of course, the question is, well, how, how might that be? <clears throat> but here's what we find out is that there's a human tendency for groups to exploit other groups. There's a human tendency because the heart is wicked, humanity's fallen, deeply broken, that they have a tendency to oppress the other. <laughs> or the foreigner is a word that's used oftentimes in the Old Testament. Let me just give you um, an example from Israel's own history of something that may, maybe you've never even seen before. Jesus picks up on it. In the New Testament, he's very aware of a shift, an evolution that happened that had to do with the other, and it was very slight, it was very small, but it was huge, and Paul talks about it. Um, <clears throat> do you realize that in the Old Testament, um, if you think about the Old Testament temple, you know how many parts there were to the temple? There's, the, there's like the inner sanctum, the holy place. There's the part right outside of that, the, the places of the priests. And then there's the court. That's it. In fact, that image is supposed to map onto Mount Sinai. When they went to Mount Sinai, all the people could come up to the base of the mountain. The elders could go up halfway. Only Moses could go up to the top. So when you read Sinai, you're supposed to see a vertical temple. <laughs> up like this. And therefore, when he explains the temple, oh yeah, I've seen that before. It's a, it's a, a tripartite image of God's space. So everyone can be on the outside. The priests or elders can be one step in, but only the high priest can be in the most holy place where God's presence is, right? This is the way the Old Testament <clears throat> talks about it. In fact, when we read even Solomon's temple, there's a First uh, Kings chapter eight, verse forty-one. The whole chapter—it's beautiful. Some, sometime go and read First Kings eight. It's Solomon praying 
about how he wants, he's asking God, God, would your house function like this, please? Like when people really screw up and they mess up and, and, and you know, you send plagues, if they turn and look to your house and, and, and repent, God, would you, would you change? Would you take that away? God, when the people do this and, and then they look to your house, would you heal them? And it's just prayer after prayer. And then he gets to verse 41. This is so cool. 1 Kings 8, 41, he, he writes this. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, one of the nations, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward your house, would you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner, one of those people of the nations, calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do as your people, Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So cool. He's saying, I want, I want your house, I want even foreigners to be welcome in your house. <clears throat> well, here's, here's one of the questions, and you'll, you'll probably know this if you've read through much much of the Gospels. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, the temple, you know what the outer court was? Anyone could be there. Now think about the New Testament, Herod's temple. The outer court has what? Is it just anyone can be there? It has divisions, doesn't it? So the third area, by the time we get to Herod's temple, it itself has three areas, doesn't it? It has um, three areas. One of those Areas is the court of Israel. And then if you'd step down a little bit less holy place, it's the court of women. And then if you step further outward, it is now the outer court, a place beyond which the Gentiles could not go. In fact, we've found, um, archaeologists have found this kind of nice little welcome sign here that was on that outer area, the, the last place up to which Gentiles could go. And this was a temple warning inscription. Israel was told by Rome, you can't carry out um, capital punishment, except one reason. If a Gentile disobeys this and they go into the court where either the Israelite women are or the Israelite men are, and this is what it says on this inscription here, any Gentile who goes beyond this point will be responsible for their death, which will shortly ensue. <laughs> it's nice when someone writes for clarity. You know what I'm saying? Like, no one's going to be confused by this statement, right? This, this is very, very clear. This is on this, this outer area. In fact, if, you, if you've uh, ever read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 21, um, Paul gets accused of bringing a Gentile, uh, a Trophimus, past this point, past this wall. Because some Ephesians saw Paul with this Gentile, and later they saw Paul in the temple, and they thought this guy was with him. He wasn't. And so th they start this big uh, riot and that sort of thing. But this was a dividing wall, is what it was called. It was a dividing wall. And for Paul and his audience, you guys, there was no greater symbol of the division between Jew and the nations 
than this dividing wall. But do you realize this was never commanded? What was commanded is, I want a court in which everyone can come. Solomon thought the, the nations, the Gentiles, can come there. But again, we have this tendency to, how do we think of the other? <laughs> and especially if you're a minority persecuted group, which is, which is what Israel was, you've got good reason for being pretty upset, don't you? At the people who have persecuted you, the people who have treated you unfairly. So this, this doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Why was it that Jesus was so mad when he went into the temple and they're selling things in the court of the Gentiles? It's not just that, it's this too. He's mad at the dividing. He knows it doesn't belong there. He knows this is not God-instructed, not God-given. So both women and the nations are kind of pushed further out. Which is, which is interesting. It's, it's sad. But this is what exactly then what Paul, when, um, let me go to listen to Paul's words to the Ephesian church. Now, it's the Ephesians who saw him in Acts 21 and who got ticked and made a riot. <laughs> but he's reading, he's, he's writing to believers, Christian believers in Ephesus. When he, um, he writes this, I'll start in verse, uh, 11, go up a little bit here. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, the nations, the goim, the ones who've been divorced, um, Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. And then verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh. What has he broken down? The dividing wall. Do not go past or you will die, and it will happen real quickly. Paul's saying, do you remember that wall that you pass every time and Gentiles can't? Jesus broke that down by his death. You can now go, go in is the picture he's giving here when he writes about this. This was a time where a message of racial reconciliation was not popular. Paul was arrested because of um, what happened in Acts 21. He spent two years in a jail in Caesarea. He was taken to Rome. Soon after that, there was like a massacre in Caesarea by the Jews fighting with the Gentiles. I mean, the message of reconciliation was not a popular one. And yet Paul's constant message is, I am the apostle to the Gentiles, the nations, the one that God divorced himself from, disinherited. But he knew that promise from Genesis 12. I'm going to bring back my blessing to the nations. And what comes with God's blessing? His presence. God's presence is available to you nations who were far off. <clears throat> Let me pause for a second. We're, we're starting to see kind of the general direction of how God thinks about the human race, how it's broken up, what his plans for everyone, nations as well as his, uh, his people, Israel. And I want to pause. 
And we'll come back to it. But I want us to look at, there's, there's a, a contemporary, um, I'm going to use the word racial issue, ethnic issue, that I think is, is extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous, and it runs the risk of dividing humans, both in the church and outside of the church. And it has corrosive power to do that. Um, th- that absolutely goes against what is God's whole goal? <laughs> well, he's gonna, he wants to get, he's bringing the nations back. That's the message of repentance, right? Go into all the world, right? Tell them, hey, the most high God, he wants you back. He wants you back. Here's an idea, though, that I think has some <clears throat> dangers, and that is uh, critical race theory. Critical race theory, and you know, so many of us hear that we're like, I don't know, what is it? I don't know, you know, wrap my mind around it. Um, I think the very best way to understand it, and I'm oversimplifying a, a, a bit. There are several tributaries that run into it, postmodernism and some other stuff. I just want to be as simple as possible with it, just so we can kind of wrap our minds around it. And I think the best way to understand it is to understand Marxism. I don't know how many of you, when you went to school, you ever studied Marxism. I remember studying it. Um, I went to a two-week camp. It was called um, Summit Ministries down in Manitou Springs. If you have grandchildren or children who are late high school, college, get them to Summit Ministries. Two weeks there, and I remember, this is like 90-something. Berlin Wall fell, fell in 89 and I go there, and we're studying worldviews. We're studying Eastern pantheism and secular humanism and all these. And then we get to Marxist-Leninism. And I was like, the wall fell. I mean, like, this is why are we studying this idea? Marxist-Leninism? That's dead. <laughs> I had to study it. <clears throat> and I remember a year or two ago when some of these movements started happening, like Black Lives Matter, critical race. And as I'm hearing it, I'm going, that's Marxist-Leninism. I studied that. <laughs> I remember that. That's, it's, now, it has a new garb, but if you understand the basic idea of Marxism, you'll be able to sniff it out. And I'll tell you this, Marxism is a universal solvent. Whatever you put it in, it destroys. Um, so let me, let me paint just sort of the picture of kind of a Marxist Maybe worldview, you would say. Um, let me throw up this image. Remember these words from your eighth grade history or whatever it was? The bourgeoisie and the proletariat. I always thought those were such cool words. I'm like, bourgeois. My daughter now says, oh, that's bougie. I'm like, it's bourgeoisie, okay? At least sound intelligent when you say it. <laughs> um, here's the basic story. Mark, Marx tells the people, the average people, um, there, there are only two groups of people in the world, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. There, there's only two. Which one do you follow? Well, most people he's talking to, they're not the elite. They're the average person. There's no middle class. They're the proletariat. They're poor. They don't have much. But then here's the next thing they're told. Do you know why those bougie people uh, have, have all the stuff? Because they took it from you. They stole it from you. And so he, he works on something called envy. How many of you get envious sometimes? I do. He nurses their envy, 
and he tells them the reason you, they have a lot is because they took it from you. What's, what's kind of the natural thing from there? Well, I want it back, <laughs> right? That is the natural <clears throat> response. And so what he said is this, look, if we could just get the workers, the proletariat, if, if, if we could all band up, but we need to get enough people together. So let's go get all the different groups. This is key. Let's go get all the groups who are disenfranchised. If we come together as a mass, think about that. We have all the power. And then we can take back what's called the means of production. <clears throat> what are the means of production? We're, we're talking about um, uh, things like um, land, machinery, factories, all the stuff that makes things. See, they have it, and they have it because of this evil thing called capitalism. <clears throat> and as long as capitalism exists, you're always going to be miserable because there's the haves and the have-nots. Those are the only two categories of people that exist in the world. Okay, Only two, the haves and the haves, the oppressors and the oppressed. And if you're in that category, you oppress. You can't help it. In fact, the whole system is built to keep you in power and keep you oppressing. The whole system is built that way. <clears throat> so therefore, we need to take it all back. We need to burn down the system. Because the system is rotten. It's, here's a key word, it's structurally, systemically broken. Therefore, it has to be torn down. It cannot be reformed because it's the problem. <clears throat> then here's always the sort of you know, little shorthand thing. Is, now, it's, you guys are going to be owning it all. In the meantime, I've got to own it just so I can kind of get everything working right. Once I get then I'll turn it over to you. Of course, we know how that always goes. Never gets turned <clears throat> over. But this is, this is the essential <clears throat> uh, claim. And so, for instance, in the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx says, we're going to have the end of all private property because that's those things that you own, that's what you use to make money. And that's capitalism. <laughs> so you're trading your wares with someone else. That's the problem. That makes the haves and the have-nots. And so Marx believed that, that capitalism ultimately creates two people because there's only two people, the haves and the have-nots. That's what it creates. And it believed that eventually the modern West, which was built on capitalism, one day it's going to crumble. Why? Because you let it go long enough, and there's going to be more and more people stacked up over on the proletariat, and fewer and fewer people stacked up in the bourgeoisie. And eventually you're going to get enough mass of people over here, they're going to go, let's rise up. And let's burn the system down and take, and take all this stuff. <clears throat> in fact, America even went through the Great Depression. Perfect, they're going to rise up because there's more proletariats. They're just adding numbers every minute. <laughs> it didn't happen. They didn't rise up. And then we had a third group grow. It's called the middle class. Oof. But there's only, there can only be two. Ah. But there's this growing middle class of people that completely destroys the entire worldview that starts with there are only two groups of people. And if now you've got a third, my system's no good. <laughs> so what goes on here? 
So you get to the 50s, larger middle class, 60s, larger middle class. And what the Marxists realized was um, we, need, we need more oppressed people. This is not good. We need more oppressed people because we need to stack up people on the proletariat side so that we can eventually take over. And so um, there were some civil rights things going on. And the Marxists thought, perfect. We'll bring them into our fold with this oppressed group, the proletariat. And so as a result of what's going on in the civil rights movement is you, you have two different groups. I'll kind of th- throw up a picture of one of the groups. You have the radical movement. This, this is the Marxist movement. It's groups like Communist Party USA, Black Panthers, Black Liberation Army, Weather Underground. This was the radical side that said, incremental reform uh-uh, does not work. We have to burn the system down. Why do they say that? Because they're Marxist. Makes sense. We have to break the system. <clears throat> and then you, you, know, you also had the other ones who were... Um, Put this back up here. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then you have the others, um, the nonviolent civil rights movement, people like Martin Luther King Jr. And they're saying, no, 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 no. The system is actually excellent, but it's not being, it's not being um, fair to us. It has all these promises, all these promises, and it's, it's like it's holding back you know, the check, the promissory note is how some of them spoke. And so it, if it would just apply to us too, fantastic. That was their movement. Incremental reform. That's what they wanted. Well, one of those two wins out. The, the nonviolent um, movement of um, reform, that one wins out. But there's a lot of people, especially in the black movement, who are sucked into the communists. One person, um, I don't know if you know the name, Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell is brilliant. If I could have one person be president tomorrow, it would be Thomas Sowell. I love the man. He's absolutely brilliant. He was a Marxist early on, even in his academic career. He believed this. And then he, you know, as many say, he kind of got mugged by reality. He ran into the wall of truth and he realized this stuff's a lie. This stuff's a, a complete lie. <clears throat> and, um, but what happened is these Marxists, again, they needed more oppressed groups. And so something that we think of as like identity politics, we've kind of heard that phrase before, this idea that I need to craft special interest groups. See, everyone with red hair, get over here. Everyone you know, like, like this, get over here. And then if, if I can get these interest groups Gather together. Remember, I need a mass of people <laughs> for revolution. <clears throat> and so looking to find more of those. This is why in, um, I don't know if you've ever read, I remember when Black Lives Matter, the organization, first came out, they had a statement of belief page. And central in there was the affirmation of the LGBT community. And a lot of people thought, like, what, what does this have to do with that? Well, it's, it's Marxism. You need to. You need to cobble together oppressed groups. You have to do that. So that's why that's they, would, they would lean in that way. Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me read this for you because it's probably the most helpful. Uh, Dr. James Lindsay, who's written some books on this. I think he's one of the people that I mentioned in the uh, further resources. <clears throat> the, the critical race theorist said, 
that all this progress, meaning the civil rights movement, the nonviolent one, is a mirage. Racism, like the really evil, pernicious racism, it never died. You might have thought it did with some people. It hasn't changed one bit, never faded, even a little bit. It just hid itself better. CRT, therefore, is not a continuation of the civil rights movement. It is, in fact, a repudiation of it. To critical race theorist Martin Luther King Jr. was both wrong and naive. White Americans can never judge black Americans by the content of their character. They can only judge them, always unfavorably, consciously or unconsciously, by the color of their skin. <clears throat> that, that that's a summary of critical race theory's view of what was going on in this movement. And it goes under a lot of things. It could be DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. It, it, it could have a numerous different names. It's the same Marxist package. <laughs> Just kind of, it, it dresses differently depending on the day. But it's the same Marxist playbook. Think about it this way. <clears throat> here's, here's what... <clears throat> Some are told through critical race theory. Um, there are only two groups of people. There's the oppressed and the oppressors. And um, <clears throat> don't, don't ask, is there racism going on? That's the wrong question. The question is, where is the racism going on? So what's happening now is, this is the new bourgeoisie proletariat, <clears throat> according to CRT. <clears throat> Instead of class, because remember, this was a class struggle, upper class, lower class. Instead of class, you just sub out race. This is why you'll hear CRT people talk about whiteness is property. Do you get the connection? It's, pro it's the means of production. Whiteness is property. That's why that's because they're, they're using a Marxist framework as they think about all of this stuff. That's going on here. Let me let me give you. I'm going to read for you a little thought experiment. This is how this is how critical race theory thinks about. Let's suppose you had an interaction. There's a white person and a black person, okay? And um, if 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 you're the white person, this is how sort of the thought experiment goes out to determine not not were you racist, where were you racist. So this sort of, imagine you're a white uh, shop owner, two customers enter at the same time, one white and one black. Who do you help first? If you help the black person first, critical race theory would say you did so because you didn't trust the black person to be left alone in your store. That's racist. Uh, if you help the white person first instead, critical race theory would say, well, uh, you did so because you think blacks are second-class citizens. That's racist. I mean, you, it's, it's a, it's a no-win. And again, because the assumption is, if you're white, you're always acting in a racist way. You just need to figure out how. You're always acting in a racist way. You just have to figure out how? And <clears throat> this is the mousetrap. Here's the mousetrap. <clears throat> if you disagree, I'm really not racist. That's just white fragility. That's evidence 
that you're blind to your racism. So you probably need to be re-educated. So the fact that you don't, so the only way for you to get out of it is to say, yes, I am racist. And then you've played the game. That's, that's, that's the mousetrap. <laughs> if you say you haven't, it's simply evidence of um, unconscious bias. So we're going to do a bias you know, test. We're going to find ways in which you have unconscious bias or internalized white, white supremacy. And, and this will even work even if a black person says, well, I, re I reject this. I, I think the American system is good. There are opportunities. They say, oh, that's false consciousness that you have. You've imbibed the false consciousness of white supremacy around you, and you don't even know it. It's, this claim is unfalsifiable. <laughs> no matter what you say, it's, oh, I can explain that. Oh, I can explain it. But you're definitely racist, I promise you that, if you're white. You're definitely always acting racist. <clears throat> and because the system is inherently benefiting the oppressor, it has to be burned down. Now think about the messages that we heard with, look, there's fire in the streets. And what was happening? I mean, there was justification for, let's bring it all down, right? Let's burn it down, let's tear it down, let's overthrow, let's defund, let's... That's a Marxist idea. I mean, it just is. It's ha it happened for you know, the past century. We as believers have to be students of history. So that when a new idea surfaces, if it's just wrapped in new garb, but it has the same core, that we go, oh, because I love the nations, because I love my fellow humans, I will call that out. You know, just like the transgenderism thing. Remember we said we're going to love the person, but man, we're going to destroy the ideology. Why? Because it destroys people. It's no different with this. This ideology destroys people. I'll just give you an example. One of the things that Marxists always do is they, they want to uh, bring down any authority structures. Church, uh, you know, state, of course. Family is another one. The Maoist revolution, this is the first thing that was done, was children taken out, not being educated by parents, and being estranged from parents. Why do you suppose in the BLM statement of belief, it says, here's one of our goals. We want to disrupt the Western-prescribed nuclear family. That means no dad. Is that helpful for black families? No dad? My goodness. <laughs> Why would an organization called Black Lives Matter be for disrupting the Western prescribed, like, it's like, like the West came up with the idea of families, and the Western prescribed nuclear family? Because Marxists hate human flourishing. Marxism, not, I'm not saying all the people, Marxism hates humans. It's absolutely anti-human. That's what's going on here. So here's what I would say. <clears throat> The premise of critical race theory, I agree with. I disagree with their conclusion. Here's their premise. The U.S. has a history of racial injustice, and there's even re residual racism that's pernicious and evil still here in America. I agree with that, 100%. 100%. I disagree with their conclusion. The structures of American government are inherent racist, structurally racist, and so have to be replaced by a Marxist political program. <laughs> what? No. 
uh, we need reformation. We need things to be reformed. We need, we need fair, equal laws. I mean, are things perfect? No. Marxist worldviews always promise utopians. Christians, I would suggest, promise trade-offs. You're never going to have a utopian. Never. Human heart's broken. <laughs> We're pretty wicked. Uh, you know, people abuse power. People treat the other badly. We have history of that in our own nation. Still happens, right? So it's trade-offs, and we work for the good of people. If anyone ever promises you a utopia, run. Run for your life, because they have a naive view of anthropology, a really messed up view of what that means. <clears throat> and here's what I, maybe I'll just, uh, I'll transition back to the um, scripture, but let me, let me show you one last thing. This oftentimes, this critical race theory stuff, it can be really ethereal, right? Like heady and academic. These are, these are some simple questions you can ask of someone who is pro-CRT, because this is just practical stuff. For instance, um, do you support schools separating third graders into oppressor and oppressed? Because that's what goes on under CRT. Um, do you support a curriculum teaching that, quote, all white people perpetuate systemic racism? Three, do you support schools instructing white parents to become, quote, white traitors and advocate for white abolition? Do you believe that <clears throat> counter-genocide is a solution to America's problems? These are just practical questions because these are the things that are being practically in the classroom, in the real world, put forth. These come out of all of that, that heady idea you know, that we were talking about. All of that stuff leads to practically, Monday morning, this behavior. So, you know, th this is probably a place to say, let's talk about, do you think this is good? Do you think this is healthy? Do you think this is, <clears throat> this is right? So it's not just an academic approach. Let me jump back to where I said we were going to go and end on. I want us to answer a question. Why didn't Jesus do anything about slavery? I've heard people say that. Why didn't Jesus do anything about, <clears throat> about slavery? Let me go to a... Uh, Jeremiah chapter 34 is a passage where... <clears throat> um, Yahweh comes to Israel uh, through Jeremiah. Nation's going to be judged and all this sort of thing. But he condemns them for something they have neglected in the law. And it's something, this is not an obscure law. This is like, everyone knows this. Okay? <clears throat> I'll start in uh, verse 12. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, this was, this was part of our covenant, okay? At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew, that is the brother, um, who has been sold to you and has served you six years. Now, just as a, as a way of explanation, when a person, uh, there's no credit cards, when you go into debt, you have to give your skills to somebody else. 
That's what this, this is not like racial slavery, but, but you get the indentured servitude, okay? But you can only use their skills for six years no matter how much they owe you. <clears throat> after six years, after they've served six years, you must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor, that is his fellow Hebrew, his brother, okay? Covenant, you made a, did that work? And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name, but then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, who you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjugation <clears throat> to be your slaves. Why didn't Jesus address slavery? Well, think about what he did. And again, this is not an obscure verse. This is a well-known, this is how you live when it comes to indentured servitude and people who are <clears throat> uh, working for you. That after these years, you must do this. Jesus leveraged the Old Testament commandment that a brother, that is a fellow Israel, cannot be kept for more than six. They have to be freed. How did he address that? He adopted the nations. His death allowed for them to be brothers. That solves it all, solves the whole thing. This is what Paul picks up on. Um... For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That means your brothers. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Or you might think of Galatians. Galatians chapter uh, 4, I'm sorry, let me go to th Galatians 3, 28, I'll start with 26. For in Christ Jesus, that means Jesus accomplished this possibility. In Christ Jesus, you're all brothers and sisters, sons of God. You all share that title through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. That's why he can say this next part. That's why this makes sense. There is neither, yeah, Jew or nations. There's no more Jew or nations. There is neither slave nor free. Remember that wall? There's also a division between where the men went and the women went. <laughs> there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, your heirs. Jesus planted the seeds of the destruction of slavery because he made them brothers. And they know darn well, you can't have a brother as a slave. <laughs> you have to let them go. See, that's what I think Paul has in mind. If you've ever read this tiny little short book, um, Philemon, you ever read this book, Philemon? Uh, Philemon's a guy that Paul knows. Philemon had a slave. His slave ran off, ended up meeting Paul became a believer, started helping Paul, and then Paul sends him back, but I love what Paul says in there. See, Paul, 
Paul could say, you know this is wrong, let him go. But look what he does. He says, um, he says, uh, you know, he came to me, I would love for him to have stayed, he helped me during my time of imprisonment. He said, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be <laughs> by compulsion, that what could happen, but by your own accord. For uh, he was away from you for a while, now that he's back, now that you have him, he's no longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, he is a, he's a beloved brother. What he's, what he's letting Philemon do is to respond to God appropriately, not compulsion, and say, you know how this works out, right? I'm going to let you do it so that your goodness can shine, that you can do what's right, not, not, not be told what to do, that you can do the right thing and release him because now he's a brother. And do you see that in Jesus bringing people into him, into the family, do you see what he's done, the ripple effect across the world? Starting with the church, that in the church, there can be no slaves. And then we're going to be a counterculture people. How come you guys don't have any, any slaves? Because we're all brothers and sisters. That would be wrong. <laughs> we're showing what it means to be the people of God. And it's all because of the Old Testament law, which was quite brilliantly written. Because it was from the mind of God. And as it's worked out, as it's fulfilled in the person of Jesus, look at the power that it has. It has the power to destroy slavery. It's interesting that this is the exact same idea and argument that the abolitionists brought up. You remember the Christmas song, O Holy Night? Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chain shall he break for the slave is our brother. <laughs> it's the same line of reasoning. You can't, you can't enslave a brother. The slave is our brother. And at his name, that's Jesus, all oppression shall cease. That's the power of the gospel. It has the power to, to cease oppression, to bring it down without burning down the systems, to actually transform the systems. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to just take a, a couple minutes, and we're going to take communion together. We do this every, every week, and it's a time for us to refocus our attention on the power of the gospel. Think about all that this symbolically <laughs> accomplished in our world. Think about all that this is accomplishing in our world, that his death bringing us into the family, what that did. So during the next minute, please walk to one of the stations. If you didn't pick one up, take the communion, the bread, Christ's body broken for us, the cup, his blood shed on the cross. Take the elements on your time, and then let's stand and worship and sing this out. <laughs>